the question that you can't do that or maybe that's not for you, maybe that's not your strong suit, you know, those statements and those perceptions of us are not necessarily the truth. The issue is, is that whether you're male or female or whatever race or, or orientation, we've all heard statements that tell us that we're this or that. The issue is we believe them. And what I would say to that eight-year-old young girl is, if this is what's in your heart to do, then do it. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Connecting ALS. I am one of your hosts, Mike Stevenson, and I am here with my co-host, Jeremy Holden, on February 11th, 2021. And for those of you who may not be aware, Today is International Women and Girls in Science Day. And Jeremy, we were fortunate to line up separate interviews with two amazing neurologists and ALS researchers to discuss what this day means to them and how we can continue to push progress uh, in those fields moving forward. Yeah, Mike, you and I have been fortunate to talk to some really great researchers in the ALS space in the past year, and many of them are women, which is, I think, a testament to the the world of ALS research. And, and as we'll hear, still some work to be done there. But you know, we've been fortunate enough to talk to Dr. Jill Yursak at the ALS Association, Dr. Merit Chikovic, uh, Dr. Sabrina Paganoni, and two more astounding researchers that are on the front lines of the fight uh, against ALS that we'll get to hear from today. Yeah, both of our guests today, Dr. Sandrine de Cruz in Belgium and Dr. Erica Green uh, in Houston, Texas, shared wonderful stories about their own role models and how they themselves are taking responsibility for the next generation of women and girls in science. Fantastic conversations. Uh, time for us to stop talking and, and let you all hear what they had to say. We're on the line today with neurologist Dr. Erica Green, who is the Sumner Family Chair in Neuromuscular Research and Director of the Neuromuscular Clinic at Houston Methodist in Houston, Texas. Dr. Green, thanks so much for being with us on Connecting ALS today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to join you today. We really appreciate you taking the time, and we have a bunch of questions for you. But before we do that, can you give our listeners a little background on yourself and your connection to ALS research? Sure. I am actually a Houston native, uh, went to school, residency, um, medical school in Houston, and always loved neurology, which is the specialty that cares for patients with ALS and like diseases. But it wasn't until I did my residency under my then and current mentor, Stan Appel, that I really developed a commitment to research and to care for ALS patients. He has been the director for one of the largest multidisciplinary clinics in our nation and still serves as a mentor mm. uh, for many. So really just coming in contact with the patients under his care and I think the first thing that impressed me as a resident, uh, a doctor in training, uh, was that although these patients are given at the time a very dire diagnosis with not as many treatment options compared to other diseases at the time, they were the ones that would often encourage us, you know, the residents and Dr. Appel, and mm. they had a fight about them. They were just amazing people they are. And often anyone who takes care of ALS patients will tell you the same. They are the nicest people, the salt of the earth. And mm. so 
um, sort of started from there. Well, it's really noble work that you do. And, and I think Jeremy and I would agree. There are so many inspiring stories throughout the world of ALS. And it's um, those living with the disease and their families will attest to it's important to have the right doctor and the right care team on your side. And it sounds like from everything we've heard about you, Dr. Green, that is the case there in Houston. The main topic we want to discuss with you today is the day being celebrated around the world on Thursday, February 11th. It's the International Day of Women and Girls in Science, which calls on all of us to defy gender biases and eliminate the discrimination that holds back women and girls in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. According to stats uh, compiled by the United Nations at this time last year, less than 30% of researchers around the world were women, and only a third of all female students selected a STEM-related fields in higher education. In your opinion, Dr. Green, what are the biggest barriers to entry that still exist for women and girls in science? Thank you for asking me the question. I think, first of all, it starts with um, women and girls early on are still um, convinced to believe that that's not their gift, that they do not have a proclivity for the sciences or technology. And so I think there have been plenty of studies, and I think it's still today that in terms of gender bias, young girls are taught to be, you know, students of the arts, um, liberal arts and English and those things, whereas in science, male students and male children are more, you know, pushed and supported in that direction. And often, you know, it sets up this thinking that I'm just not good at math or I'm just not good at science. Hmm. And so I think that still is the issue today, although hopefully as a few more women get into these fields and young girls uh, start seeing role models, it becomes more of a reality. I also think that that's the second point, that we are still lacking sufficient number of role models. It's slowly changing, but still there's a huge gap. And, uh, you know, I can tell my own story, I'll be honest with you, and I tell my residents and medical students this story that, you know, when you're eight years old and people ask you what you're going to be, I think everyone says doctor, lawyer, fire chief, mm-hmm. you know, what have you. And, and I was no different. I mean, the thing you say is a doctor, not really knowing what that meant. But my mother's youngest brother, who was the first to go beyond college, went to medical school. And he would come home on the weekends and he became engaged to a beautiful woman. And she would come to visit him sometimes on a Sunday. Hmm. And I remember thinking as a little girl, wow, she's a doctor. She was funny and tall and beautiful. And she looked nothing like the doctors that I had seen as a child. Sure. And I remember thinking to myself, that's what a doctor looks like. And from that point on, whenever I said I wanted to be a doctor, I thought of Amelda, which was her name. Hmm. And it was just having someone before me who looked like me or was like me that I could picture and imagine myself doing the same thing. And sometimes that's all it takes. And so I think going back to the second reason is 
having enough of those role models, whether it's for a second in time or someone who can actually get involved with your journey and mentor you. Those are the two issues I see. I think there are cultural issues and social issues, obviously. Mm. Um, and that, that we could talk on uh, in detail. But I think from the beginning, those are the two major factors. Such an important point that you bring up about the role that role models can play and being able to see people who look like me in the fields that I want to pursue. You're obviously a very busy professional and doing great work. Uh, what are some of the ways that you try to model for the next generation and show that this is a possible path forward uh, for them to pursue? Thinking on that, I think I'd like to consider myself accessible. I think the strongest mentors and role models are those who seem larger than life, but yet they're very accessible. And so even if you see someone like you, if they're so high up and so distant, either because of their career or their schedule or just their interests, it can be hard to relate, even if they're the same gender or background. So the key is to be accessible to those around me and um, to the students, uh, the residents, whoever who come to me for a variety of reasons and see that I'm actually normal, that I do have a story, I do have a journey, I can talk about my passions, uh, my challenges, I can give advice, and uh, the balance of life that comes with being a professional, a mother, a wife, um, a friend, and all of those, now a grandmother. Mm. So, Congratulations. Uh, thank you. And so... That, that's number one. And then as a role model, being a, a role model who deserves to be a role model. Mm. You know, it's, it's holding yourself accountable and leading yourself and, and teaching them how to do the same and how to problem solve and have sort of a growth mindset, you know, resilience and grit that I think the younger generation needs to, to learn and it needs to be modeled for them. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about participation and access for women and girls in the STEM fields, but pay is, of course, a problem as well with women employed in these fields making an average of about 20% less than their male counterparts on an annual basis. Is the, the compensation gap, the pay gap, something that you witness in your field as well, doctor? I have. It was not anything that I guess I was honestly sort of focused on because I went after residency, I did research in the lab and there are funding mechanisms that right now funding mechanisms at, at that level aren't specific to gender. Mm. But, you know, once you get out and you begin to practice, you know, you come to the conclusion that maybe there, there is inequity, right? Even in a situation where you feel supported, there is inequity. Mm -hmm. uh, and yes, it is not desirable. It's not specific to research. It's just specific to the profession in many professions. Mm -hmm. What I appreciate is that many organizations, including a national organization for neurologists called the American Academy of Neurology, for the past five years has dedicated to creating venues, leadership, training, networking for those populations who might be underserved or underrepresented or uh, sort of, you know, on the other side of a gap, including women, as a way to give us a voice and tools to 
advocate for ourselves, to negotiate for ourselves. And I think that's been part of it, not really knowing how to speak up and to negotiate and to ask and to justify and to argue in a professional way (laughs) (laughs) what, what you deserve. And so even I have had to learn how to not shade in the shade into the background and how to advocate and ask and justify what you deserve and what you need. Partly it's the system. There's mm. no doubt. You, you would hope that the system would be fair without having to be told, without having to be penalized or supervised. But on the other hand, it also reflects the culture of many women where we've not really been told how or encouraged to be an advocate for ourselves. And so it's, it's not as clear cut as this is just a system issue. It's a, it's an intrinsic issue Hmm. that, that women and girls that needs to be role model that needs to be taught. We need to go back to those younger than us who are coming up behind us and saying, this is how you stand up for yourself. This is how you negotiate. This is how you assert yourself professionally. And, and sort of shorten that gap. Right. Have you seen changes in the course of your career uh, in the recruitment efforts to try and address this issue and, and reach out to more women and girls and, and, and make sure that those opportunities are available and that, that those recruitment efforts are, are underway? What are you seeing there? You know, in my local, in my small microcosm, I can't say I've seen a huge effort I'll be honest with you. Do I see women in, in leading clinical and research and administrative positions more and more? I do. More so than what I did 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. But do I, am I aware of programs that are addressing that in my institution? Not so much. But, you know, to be fair, I'm not necessarily directly involved with those initiatives currently. I am involved in medical student education as well at Houston Methodist. There's an engineering medical school branch. And I think the emphasis on implicit bias and gender and race equity Hmm. is being taught at the student level. I'm not really seeing it at the doctor in training or resident level to the same degree. And definitely not in the postgraduate faculty, you know, physician employee level. That's where it's missing. We're, we're beginning to teach it, but I'm not sure we're doing it. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Is it a conversation that comes up, a topic of conversation that comes up amongst uh, your female colleagues in the field? We are fortunate, I think, in, in ALS research to have so many um, yes. great role models, female role models in ALS research, many of whom the association is tied directly to. Do you have those conversations candidly and say, you know, are there things that we could be doing or steps that we should be supporting in this way? Uh, I've had those conversations with others in our field, you know, uh, from Lori Gutman, who's who's a close professional uh, friend of mine. And, you know, COVID has separated us a little bit. But yes, I've had those conversations. And, you know, I think what we've all said is that once we get to a place, it's our responsibility to sort of open up the path, widen the path mm-hmm. for those behind us. It, it's really been more of a uh, an individualized commitment to widening that path for other 
females who are seeking to get to our position. And so that's really been the conversation. And then getting involved in those leadership programs that are now being offered at many, or, you know, across many organizations, whether it's the AA, the American Association of Medical Colleges, or, you know, specialty specific organizations like neurology, where they're now taking the lead and trying to provide a way for women and other underrepresented groups to, to network, to improve recruitment, improve retention. There are now task force and committees that are, have been put in place. And I do serve on, on, on one through my organization, the American Academy of Neurology, where there's an effort in how do we increase interest and recruitment, even starting at the high school level. So it's starting to take form as I think about it. It's starting to take form and more so than what I've ever seen. It's so intentional. Mm. And I'll be honest with you. I was unaware that there was an international women and science day on February 11th until this year. I don't know how long we've had that day, but that tells you, that tells you something already, doesn't it? Yep. So, you know, we're starting to see the signal just by having this conversation. Mm -hmm. Reflecting on those high school students that you talked about or thinking about the eight-year-old girl today who tells people that she wants to be a doctor when she grows up, uh, what message do you have to encourage that generation to pursue those dreams? Simply, you can do it. You can absolutely be a doctor. You can be a scientist. You can run a lab. You can run a department. You can do this. And if I can do it, you can do it. That's all they need to know. Hmm. All they need to know is that someone has walked the path and they've gotten to that place. That's all it takes. The question that you can't do that or maybe that's not for you, maybe that's not your strong suit, you know, those statements and those perceptions of us are not necessarily the truth. The issue is, is that whether you're a male or a female or whatever race or, or orientation, we've all heard statements that tell us that we're this or that. Hmm. The issue is we believe them. And what I would say to that eight-year-old young girl is, if this is what's in your heart to do, then do it. Because nine times out of 10, that statement is wrong if you put your nose to the grindstone and you go for what you want. And there are so many examples of that in medicine, in technology, among women and men, in, in other fields as well. As well. And, um, you know, uh, at first, initially, I wanted to do neurosurgery before neurology. And I went to the chair at the time at my school. Nice, very nice man and, uh, and quite respected. And I was serious. I didn't see any female neurosurgeons and not any black ones. Hmm. And um, he was very kind. And he said, well, you know, I have this many children and I can tell you I barely raised them. And and I just don't think this field is for you. Hmm. And because I respected him and I do, I still do. I think he's retired. He wasn't trying to be, you know, I don't think he was intentionally trying to diminish my dreams. He, that he placed his perceptions on me. Right. Sure. And as a young person, you trust those people you respect and you trust their perception of you, 
Now I wouldn't, I don't regret the position and where I am, but now I see examples of other females as neurosurgeons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I see, you know, females in our neurosurgery program and over here, and I've seen black females complete and, and, and Latin American females. And I'm like, huh, why I, then I could have done that. Mm. You see? So I think, my my advice to that young girl is if you want to do it, you can do it. And the fact that it's been done proves to you that if you really want it, you can have it. The road to get there is different for everybody. Some have to work a little harder, a little longer. The challenges are different, but it is definitely possible. That is an inspiring, powerful message. Thank you for that, doctor. And for, being among those that are setting examples for women and girls coming up in scientific fields today. Before we let you go, we do want to ask you about your ALS research. We know that you've been involved in a number of trials and published so many articles over the years. Is there anything that you're working on or tied to now that you can tell us about uh, in terms of progress uh, in ALS research? Well, I think we're so excited about the number of therapies that have come up in the past five to seven years for ALS, and our site has been involved. I've served as a primary investigator with my colleagues on, you know, uh, there's a a new drug, um, uh, mesitinib, which is, Mm. was approved in Europe. And, you know, we're excited to be a a part of that as well as a C9 North studies that are coming through for patients who have an inherited form or Mm -hmm. a genetic mutation associated ALS. And so we've been involved in a number of trials over the years, some of which, most of which have not worked, but to be in an era where we can participate in the ALS Healy trial with uh, Dr. Sarah Paganoni. uh, So we're a site for that. This is an exciting time because now we've learned the process of evaluating and testing a number of drugs all at the same time without the lull of starting over. So I foresee that in addition to Radicava, in addition to Nudexta, that in the next one to three years, we're going to have another, if not two more drugs in the pipeline to be FDA approved Hmm. that are directed at different mechanisms, but all working together to slow progression. You know, Radicava was the first FDA-approved drug that was directed at the disease versus the symptoms since Riluzole. And Riluzole, I think, was FDA-approved in 1996 or in the mid-1990s. And so that was an exciting time because we found a drug that slowed progression. I believe that we're going to go even further. And I think I'm very excited about the ALS Healy trial platform because that has provided a study design that allows us to study many drugs and not lose ground. And I think that's always been a delay is that the funding, the time, the recruitment, we start a study, then it takes a while to start another study. And this way we can study really plausible drugs in a rapid way. So very exciting time. That's great. That's great. Well, we feel really fortunate to have gotten to speak with you, Doctor. Uh, It was a thoughtful conversation. Thank you. Pleasure was fun. Thanks again to Dr. Green for sharing her thoughts and experiences. We're going to keep things moving and go right into our conversation with Dr. Sandrine DeCruz. 
We're on the line today with Dr. Sandrine de Cruz from the University of Leuven and VIB in Belgium. Dr. de Cruz, thanks so much for being with us on Connecting ALS today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we have much to discuss. But before we get into all of it, doctor, because I'm sure some of our listeners are curious to know more about you, can you give us a little background on yourself as well as your connection to ALS research? Of course. So I I actually am, I guess, multi-ethnic person. So I was born in France. Uh, and did my studies there, my undergraduate studies there. But my parents are actually from Portugal, so already uh, two different uh, nations. And mm-hmm. then went to Switzerland, where I did my PhD uh, on uh, what is the studying, the, what helps us with the powerhouse uh, of, of our cells, mitochondria, and really understanding fundamental mechanisms of mitochondria. And that's what got me into ALS, because early on we thought that mitochondria were not functioning properly in disease, in this devastating uh, motor neuron uh, disease, the ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And since I really wanted to work on a neurodegenerative disease to really try to understand and help uh, patients with devastating disease, I went to California, to UCSD, to do my postdoc with Dr. Don Cleveland, who has, of course, been working uh, very well known in ALS. And this is how I got started in ALS quite a few years ago. And really right at the start, I was very fortunate uh, because I was awarded by the ALS Association with a fellowship, uh, the the Milton Safilovitz Fellowship back in 2007. And this was really my early introduction to ALS and to the ALS community, which I was really grateful for because that enabled quite a bit in my young career at that time. Sure. And what brought you to Belgium? And so that's, you know, my European background, obviously, as well. Uh, But uh, so I spent quite a few years, about 14 years in San Diego and about a year ago, uh, with the family, we decided to move back to Europe, and uh, we found this great place in Belgium, in Leuven, uh, where I'm actually now also have my my lab at the VAB uh, Center for Brain and Disease Research at University of Leuven, KU Leuven. About a year ago, still working obviously on on understanding what's causing disease, and with the ultimate goal, of course, for helping and developing therapy. Well, we really appreciate uh, your work in the field, doctor, and we will uh, likely ask you more about your research in a bit. But the main topic we want to discuss with you today is uh, the day being celebrated around the world on February 11th, International Day of Women and Girls in Science, which uh, calls on all of us to uh, defy gender biases and eliminate the discrimination that holds back women and girls in the fields of science, uh, technology, engineering, and mathematics. According to uh, stats compiled by the United Nations, at this time last year, less than 30% of researchers around the world were women, and only a third of all female students selected STEM-related fields in higher education. In your opinion, Dr. DeCruz, what are the biggest barriers to entry at the moment uh, for women and girls in STEM fields? Quite, quite a bit of progress has been made throughout the years, especially since back when I, I started and now. But much much more needs to be done and it's it's really up to us to make sure that uh, we encourage as much as possible parity i guess in everything we do i think it's still important that we all of us at every single level we keep that in mind and especially uh, in the young generation i think it starts back 
in the youngster, uh, the level of elementary school even, and encouraging as much as possible having access to these STEM programs. Uh, I think this is, this is key. Uh, there's quite a few initiatives out there, but I think promoting more and more of those is really important. I can see it myself with my own daughter, you know, how uh, enthusiastic she she's, has been when she got into this robotic program back in San Diego when she was still in third, fourth grade. Mm. And I think this is really important, accessible, but to, to all schools throughout all the communities as much as possible. I think this is something that is still missing and that, that we need to encourage you know, uh, Dr. DeCruz, in addition to encouragement and, and um, opportunity, uh, I, I think about the role that role models play. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the role models you had growing up and, and the role of just having that imagery of this is a this is a field that is open to me, a path that's open to me? Uh, what role does that play in at a young age, uh, triggering some of those thoughts of this is a potential path that I can go down? Yeah, it's, it's exactly what you're saying, having more of these role models and, and going to, to you know, uh, us as women and, and scientists or whatever background, whatever uh, technology and other engineer. It's important that we go back to school and, and give our examples, what we've done uh, and how just, you know, by example, say how it is possible we can get there. Uh, and I think that's really important to to convey that message. For me, actually, I I I grew up in a in a in a family where actually I'm the first one in my family who went to the university who did a PhD, and so of course you know as as a woman I'm, and and just as a person I'm very thankful for my family because that was not really part of the my parents in particular, that was really not in our culture, and so I think just that already. I hope, uh, you know, by going out there and explaining that it is possible, even from someone who around me, nobody could ever follow that path. That uh, we, 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 it is, it is, it is absolutely uh, possible. Uh, clearly, you are setting an example, Doctor. Neither Jeremy nor I have the necessary skills or. Uh, brain power to be in a scientific <laughs> field, which is why we ended up in communications. But one thing we often discuss is messaging and how we communicate about these fields is important. Going back to that UN data again, a recent global gender bias study showed that in digital ads for uh, STEM-related jobs, only 12% of the on-screen characters were represented by women. Do you feel, doctor, that when these jobs are being advertised and recruited for and discussed, that the the focus remains on men in most cases. Well, I think I think we're still behind. I think really, again, a lot a lot of effort is being is being put out there, but clearly it's not enough, and that's why those numbers are still so low, and it's not enough, and we're still far behind from having you know a fully uh, parity, I guess, uh, between men and women, uh, not just out of jobs out there, or but you know even in 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 at the end of the the paycheck, right? Uh, mm -hmm. There's still this bias against against us as women. Uh, for, in principle, uh, we should all have uh, equal based on, on experience. And of course, one could always 
start uh, saying, well, but uh, we could always come up with some examples where justifying why a man theory could should be paid higher, but in reality, it, it should not be the case. And so clearly, we, there's, there's still quite, quite a lot of work that needs to be done. Efforts are being made uh, when actually when we recruit at every single level, at the level of PhD students, postdoctoral fellows, or even hired faculty now trying as much as possible to make sure that we're no longer back to that, you know, uh, engine model, I would say. Um, but, uh, yeah, clearly we're not there yet. Um, A lot of work to be done on that front, to be sure. Dr. DeCruz, you mentioned earlier the your uh, affiliation with the uh, Safenowitz Fellowship, and I know that uh, Dr. Jill Yursak and the team over there are very proud of the fact that so many of those fellows go on to open up their own labs. Can you talk to us a little bit about the work that your lab is doing these days? What are you uh, What are you focused on? Uh, walk us through uh, some of the uh, exciting research that you're conducting. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, so you know, I mentioned I really. Started back in, uh, actually I joined Don's lab, Don Cleveland's lab back in 2006. And 2007, I believe, is when I received my my fellowships, a uh, fellowship, uh, the Milton Safinovitz, really studying uh, mechanisms of underlying uh, neurotoxicity in ALS. And since then, uh, that's what I uh, now as an independent, also continuing those efforts. Later on, actually, uh, the, the, I've been really, really fortunate to have support from the ALS Association. Uh, later on as independent also with the Ice Bucket uh, Challenge uh, uh, funding for my own research and really focusing on, on what's causing one of the earliest hallmarks in disease, which is uh, leading to muscle paralysis and the loss of, of those key connections between the motor neurons and the muscles called the neuromuscular junctions. And, and this is really uh, what my lab has been focusing on, trying to understand who are the molecular players uh, that actually <clears throat> during adulthood and maintaining those neuromuscular junctions and importantly why in, in ALS uh, those are progressively lost and so and that leads to, to uh, obviously paralysis and, and ultimately uh, a fatal paralysis. And so that's um, one of the main focuses of the lab, trying to understand and of course to identify molecules that will reduce this uh, muscle that we call muscle denervation or loss of those contacts and or will promote uh, or uh, stimulate back uh, these these junctions if possible. So this is a, a major area of investigation in my lab. Dr. DeCruz, before we let you go, what message would you have? Just um, thinking back, reflecting back on uh, International Day of, of Women and Girls in Science, uh, what message do you have for women and girls who are considering a career or pursuit, an academic pursuit in science? I think it's always very important to always, always believe in ourselves, never doubt. And of course, with passion and perseverance, believe that uh, we can achieve uh, you know, our dreams. Uh, for me, it's true that I was able to do so uh, early on. Uh, I, I I knew I wanted to work in this field, uh, but but you know I worked hard. But also, I was very fortunate to be surrounded by people who helped me. Uh, my mentors, for example, and one of them, Don Cleveland, has been really really key there. Um, I have to, especially in 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 this field where. Uh, 
it, it's quite impressive to see actually how um, postdoctoral fellow, how many from his uh, trainees actually became independent and in this re in research uh, and, and academia or industry, it doesn't matter, but really gave really the support needed and in particular for women. And I think this is really an important model to have and having support from those those uh, amazing people also helps certainly but again believing in 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 yourself also and never give up thank you so much for your time dr de cruz for your critical work in als research and for setting such a strong example from which we can all learn as we uh, try to bring more women and girls into science and technology and thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure really to be here today with you. Well, you said it in our conversations with doctors De Cruz and Green, Mike, uh, only 30% of researchers around the world are women. Uh, it was fascinating to hear from the two of them what can be done and what is being done to increase representation amongst women and girls in the STEM fields. Uh, really just grateful to uh, have been able to be part of this conversation. Absolutely. It's important to remember that we each need to do our part to break down gender biases and improve access uh, for women and girls in STEM fields. The International Day of Women and Girls in Science is one day of the year, but let's make sure we carry that conversation for the other 364. That will conclude this week's episode. Be sure to give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter for all the latest content and subscribe on your favorite podcast service to make sure weekly episodes hit your inbox. We would also really appreciate reviews in those spaces if you're able to make the time. This episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thank you all for listening. We'll connect with you again soon. Thank you.